Hi, everyone. You're listening to Radio Cherry Bomb, and I'm your host, Carrie Diamond, coming to you from Newsstand Studios at Rockefeller Center in the heart of New York City. Each week, we feature interviews with the coolest culinary personalities around. I'll be talking to one of my favorite folks around, Yotam Adolenghi, the culinary legend. I know so many of you adore his cookbooks, like Adolenghi Simple. Yotam has had such a big impact on getting more folks to expand their culinary horizons, turning countless folks onto Middle Eastern and Mediterranean foods and flavors and pantry items. He's a columnist for The New York Times Magazine and The Guardian, and he has several restaurants and delis in London. An Ottolenghi deli is not the same as the delis I grew up with here in New York City, but Yotam will tell us more. Joining Yotam is Noor Murad, who might have the best job in the world. She's the head of the Ottolenghi Test Kitchen. She and Yotam collaborated on a new book from the Test Kitchen called Extra Good Things, and they are here to tell us all about it. A little housekeeping. Our annual Cooks and Books Festival is taking place November 5th and 6th at Ace Hotel Brooklyn. It's coming up soon. We've got panels, talks, and demos with so many amazing folks you've heard right here on Radio Cherry Bomb. Peeps like Ruth Reichel, Aaron French, Grace Young, Tanya Holland, Athena Calderon, and lots of new friends, too. If you love cookbooks and writers, this is the place to be. Snag your tickets and check out the talent lineup at cherrybomb.com. Our bookstore partner is Kitchen Arts and Letters, and they'll be selling signed copies of everyone's book all weekend. Speaking of the ace, they've put together a special Cooks and Books room package for those of you coming to town for the festival or who maybe want a staycation. The Cooks and Books package includes two all-access passes plus the new issue of Cherry Bomb, ooh, and a room with a view and more. Visit acehotel.com backslash Brooklyn for all the details. And while you're at the Ace Hotel for Cooks and Books weekend, be sure to swing by their restaurant, as you are, for a special Cooks and Books-inspired prefix menu. Let's thank today's sponsor, Headley and Bennett. They just launched a brand new Kitchen Essential, and founder Ellen Bennett is here to tell us more. Hi, everybody. It's Ellen Marie Bennett, founder and chief brand officer of Headley and Bennett, a company I founded over a decade ago. A lot of you out there know and love our aprons, so I'm proud to share we have a brand new kitchen essential, the Headley and Bennett Chef's Knife. We designed it with the same level of detail as our aprons, with nothing overlooked. We collected feedback from the best chefs we know, some really particular peeps with lots of fancy food awards, and went back to the drawing board several times over. The result? A chef's knife designed for those of you working 12-hour shifts, standing in the same spot, cutting onions for hours. I've been there. I know you want that knife to feel good. So we focused on the details that make it more comfortable than any other knife. It's incredibly lightweight, and the top is slightly rounded and super ergonomic so you don't get calluses on your fingers. It's Japanese steel, holds its edge, is beautiful, functional, and essential. In other words, it's the perfect tool for the pro chefs, for my home cooks out there, and for everyone in between. We are so excited for you to try our Headley & Bennett Chef's Knives for yourself. Visit headleyandbennett.com for more. Thank you, Ellen. Ellen really is a stickler for detail. I attended her wedding, and I can attest that she pays attention to detail. Now, let's check in with Yotam and Noor. Yotam, Noor, welcome to Radio Cherry Bomb. Thank, Thank you, you for having <laughs> us. This is so exciting. Yotam, three times on Radio Cherry Bomb. I know. I'm a veteran. <laughs> <laughs> I love being here. Thanks, Karen. Oh, it's so nice to see you in New York. We were trying to figure out the last time we saw each other, and it might have been a long time ago in London. 2017, yeah, you came to speak to Helen and to me about our book suite. 
Helen Go. Yeah, Helen Go. And Nora, first timer. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. So what brings you two to New York? So we've got a new book out uh, called Extra Good Things. It's from the Ottolenghi Test Kitchen, or known also as OTK. It's a book that we're especially proud of because for me, it captures this moment in time. It's all about those extra good things, which are condiments or sauces or sprinkles, things that you could use to uh, what we call uh, autolengify your food. <laughs> so things that like flavor bombs, jars of wonderful things that really add a lot of flavor to your food. And it, it relates to our times in, in, in different ways. But during lockdowns, uh, when we were all looking for ideas of what to cook, like three meals a day, those are shortcuts to flavor. So you can make something quite simple and take those jars out of your cupboard and, and int- introduce all this flavor Well, you have been the king of the extra good thing for a long time. So very excited about this book. Did you make it to New York much during the pandemic? Uh, No. I mean, so I I was here earlier this year, so in May. But otherwise, no, I haven't been here for quite a while. It's really nice to be back. New York feels unchanged to me. I know a lot of locals would say, oh, you know, this has changed and that had changed. But it's just so vibrant and there's just like the vibe is still there. Nor, how about you? When's the last time you were in New York? I was actually here earlier this year in May uh, for one of my best friend's weddings because I, I used to live here. So I have uh, loads of friends and uh, yeah, and it was just really amazing to fly out. Uh, but I had, before that, I hadn't been since 2016. Okay. Yeah. Do you feel similar to Yotam? It hasn't changed that much? I don't know. It is a bit weird because I feel like, you know, your your friends have kind of moved on with their lives. Everyone's doing their own things. Every time you come, it is a bit, it's like the city's changed a bit. Every time I come here, you always have like this rush because it just feels so, so good to be in this energy that is New York. How? (laughs) This is a crazy question to ask because I know the answer. How are things in London? It has been quite a dramatic time for the UK. Yeah, (laughs) there's so much drama. (laughs) Yeah, we have, um, I mean, we've had this kind of political upheaval. We've changed prime minister more than we change our socks. And it's just, it's very... I don't know. It's just so weird to the world we live in. And we're just kind of used to this drama. And it doesn't it's not good for the psyche. It's not we need stability. We want we yearn stability and we just can't mm. seem to be able to get it. But in the UK, especially, it feels very, very haphazard. Well, there's a lot we could talk about about the world and what's wrong with the world. But I want to talk about what's right with the world. And you two put out so much good stuff. Thank you for that, because it's a nice <laughs> escape from all the craziness. And, you know, Thomas, you've been you know, trying to get us to do your whole career is get people to cook and connect over food. Yeah. And I like that you make this connection because people ask us about the books and the Ottolenghi uh, Test Kitchen cookbooks. This one is called Extra Good Things. And the other one that came out last year is called Chef Love. In some way, the story that they're telling is the story of the comfort that we find in the kitchen in these crazy days. So, you know, we there is a crisis. We're in constant crisis or so from one to the next cost of living, uh, wars, pandemic. And the one place that people really found comfort comfort is in their kitchens. And we say, we kind of embrace that and we say, okay, well, if we're going to be spending so much time in the kitchen, which we are, let's make it a bit easier for you. Let's see how you could cook with ingredients. So Shelf Love was about the accessible ingredients that you find in your cupboards, your chickpeas or your frozen corn or, you know, things that are just there in the kitchen all the time and make them the center of your meals. And Extra Good Things is about making a, 
a dish and then having a little extra to start off your next your next dish. So speaking of happy places, before we talk about the book, I want to talk about the Otto Lange Test Kitchen, because in my mind, and I've said this to you, I feel like it's this it's this kind of magical place, like not quite Willy Wonka. I don't think you're walking around, you know, dressed like Willy Wonka and singing <laughs> songs and reciting weird lines from Shakespeare. And it just seems like such a dreamy, happy place. Nor, how did you wind up in the Otto Lange Test Kitchen? I moved to London six years ago from Bahrain. And yeah, I was working at Otto Lange's, but it feels just one of our delis. And then the Test Kitchen job kind of came up and I heard about it and I was like, what is what is this test kitchen? Like, I don't, you know, I never heard of it. And I wasn't really sure what people did there. And I just, I was like, oh, so you test recipes all day and then like you eat them. And um, <laughs> that's and was, what we think. We're like, you test recipes all day and you eat them. Yeah. And I was like, that sounds great. Yeah, sign me up. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and now it's been five years and, um, and it is, you know, you made the Willy Wonka reference, but I always say it kind of is like that because it's such a creative, happy place, except there's no chocolate. There's just loads of tahini. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, um, and everyone there is like such a diverse team of creatives and everyone comes from different culture and different backgrounds. So they're kind of like the test kitchen Avengers because everyone has their superpower and whatever they're good at. So whether it's like Middle Eastern flavors or my other colleagues from Mauritius, so she brings like the island vibes and the coconut and the limes. Um, and yeah, and everyone ha- kind of has their, their own hand in, in, in the recipes they create. And how do you decide like this is what we're going to do today? I mean, I know there's structure. It's a workplace. It's not this fantasy place. <laughs> there's a little bit of fantasy, but I, I think the way it works is that... So it's this desk kitchen started as a, as a small thing. So it was a place where I worked with one other person and then another person to create new recipes for cookbooks or for the uh, newspapers that we have recipes in. And essentially, and I, I realized that in, at an early stage, uh, that in, in, in order to come up with like really good new recipes, you need to own them. So you need to, it's not, the recipes are not kind of designed by committee at the test kitchen. We don't all sit down and say, oh, oh, you know, that would be a good idea. And then essentially it starts off with a conversation that it can, it can be that we discuss together, but ideas come from a, one person and, that, and, that, and they follow that recipe through. And for me, this is really important, that, that, that sense of ownership. The same applies for the restaurants. So, so the chefs in the restaurants have a pretty much free freedom to create their own recipes. And then we, we do it under an understanding of what Ottolenghi food is, like what it is like to create a dish under the, the guise of an Ottolenghi recipe. But then it could be if someone's really has, has a history with Mexican cooking, so it, has, it could be Mexican or it could be Bahraini or it could be North African, or it could be all sorts of things, but we understand what we mean by Ottolenghi. Mm-hmm. Tell us what else is in the Ottolenghi world. We run restaurants and delis in London, so there's seven altogether. Uh, we've got uh, recipes in the Guardian and the New York Times. And apart from that, we do uh, YouTube videos in which we kind of show the recipes, obviously, through through videos, and then a bunch of kind of social media. And we also uh, develop recipes for uh, our restaurants and delis. So as I said, I mean, each chef is in charge of their own menus, but we also have conversations going on and cross conversations. And we're kind of working on more on turning the test into the uh, hub, the creative hub for the whole company. And when you say deli, so where I grew up, a deli was akin to like a bodega in New York. 
What it's, you call a deli is not quite yeah, a deli. I think this is where you, you cross the Atlantic <laughs> Ocean and you have different terms <laughs> signifying the things. So this is not a deli uh, in the New York sense of the deli or, or American. This my is, parents would send me to the deli to get like a pound of bologna to make our yeah. lunches all week <laughs> when Nothing I was like a kid that. at school. Yeah. <laughs> all the lengi bologna. <laughs> yeah. no, that could be a thing. <laughs> Just give me credit when that happens. People would, you, people would line up to buy that. Yeah. Come on. We'll call it a cherry bomb. Bologna. Yeah. Cherry bomb bologna. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think that'll sell as well. A cherry bomboloni. Bomboloni. Yes, bomboloni. But Adolengi bologna will do much better than cherry bomboloni. So, Nora, what is a deli in London? The ones in in, uh, in London, it's kind of, you come in, and what Adolengi is very well known for is just, like, these big displays. So, like, all these displays are very vibrant, abundant, inviting salads. And then there's another display, which is the pastry display. So it's all the cakes and these big, like, pillowy, cloudy meringues. You know, and that's what you think of when you go to Atalengi. So it's always in the windows. And these are basically the delis. And people can come in and take something to go. Or they can come and sit down and, and have a bunch of different plates. There's a lot of beautiful food on display that's freshly cooked mm. every single day or baked. And it creates that kind of sense of occasion mm, yeah i think it's quite um like i would say a very middle eastern that's the middle eastern part of you that yeah. has come in because it's very much like you've come to my house and i'm gonna give you an array of all these different choices and you can choose what you like it's very much it's very abundant in that sense in a way it's a bit it's a little bit like the market you know there's like this because it's vertical so mm. you can kind of pile it up high and that's what you see in markets but obviously not with raw ingredients but we do it with cooked food and and your vision is just kind of completely covered by that, that, those displays, which is essential for the Autolenghi look. And there's these flower arrangements, etc. So it's, it's, it's sensual and it's inviting. The Autolenghi Test Kitchen is a very international place. How has that evolved over the years? I suppose what it is is that people come to work at the Test Kitchen if they've got a certain uh, degree of expertise, you know, when they've cooked uh, in, in restaurants or other environments. In the past, but you don't need to be of a particular background. It just happens to be that people come and bring their own. You, whoever comes to cook in the Otolengi Test Kitchen has a, their own history, whether it's where they grew up or where they cooked as professionals. And that's all welcome because in some ways, all these experiences make the Test Kitchen interesting. So Noor brings with her, yeah, food that she cooked when she or was exposed to as a child and as a grown up. And then also she, she went to the Culinary Institute of America is here, and that is a particular way of cooking and then working out, working in restaurants in New York. And then every person has their own story. Mm -hmm. And that really contributes to how diverse the dishes are. And you can like really interesting stuff happening just by the, by the fact that so many people have different backgrounds. That's a good way to tee up our question. Yeah. For Noor, <laughs> what's your story? <laughs> my story. Um, so I, I come from Bahrain. I grew up in Bahrain. My dad is Bahraini and my mom is English, um, but she's lived there for like 40 years. So she's an honorary Bahraini now. Bahrain is really unique. I think a lot of people don't really know much about the food culture there. And, you know, when people think about Arabic food, they think of like hummus and falafel and, and all these really delicious things. But there's a lot more. It's a lot richer than that. There's so much more to it. Um, it's very diverse. And in Bahrain, the food is kind of a mixture of like Persian flavors, so really herb heavy and like, you know, dried limes and these sour flavors. Um, but then we use a lot of Indian spices. We love our spicy food and Arabic dishes. So it's a lot of like big grand rice dishes. 
paired that with like my mom's English, um, like shepherd's pies and uh, and uh, cauliflower cheese. So I kind of always mix these two things in, in the way I cook. And I got into food really young. I was about 16 when I got my first job, a summer job in a kitchen. I just fell in love with like the chaos of it all. It was just so intense and crazy. And, and But I just, I really loved that rush. And I think that's what kind of pulled me in. And uh, yeah, and then I went and moved to New York and studied at, at the CIA and, and, and worked here and stuff. How um, did you wind up in the U.S. for that? I always say like, you don't need to go to culinary school. I think your school is working in kitchens, but if it, it's great when you live somewhere in like New York or you live somewhere like London where it's so diverse. There's so many places you can go work in. Uh, but in Bahrain, I don't think you have that so much. For me, I was kind of like just I just researched that I was like, oh, where would I want to go? And then I and then I found it and I was like, wow, that looks like a really impressive, amazing school. And um, and I was very nervous moving to America. I just felt like I was from this tiny island and very like shy. And I mean, nobody would think that now because I'm so like loud and quite um, outspoken. But before I <laughs> kept all my opinions to myself and then I came to New York and it was just um yeah, I felt like it was this larger-than-life place with so, such big personalities. But I think it also helped me find my voice and my personality in food. And then, yeah, I went back to Bahrain, but I still had this, I guess, urge for, like, a, a, a big city life. Uh, I think that's maybe, like, small island syndrome or something. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and then ended up moving to London, like, six years ago. And that's, that's kind of my story in a nutshell. And how did you get the job in the test kitchen? You know, I sent my, I typed up my resume and I sent an email and I sent it to the Autolenghi contact email and I was like, you know, and then I just I thought to myself, I remember like my finger was like hovering over the button and I was like, am I really doing this? Like, what am I, anyone even going to like respond to this girl in Bahrain? Like, and I really, and I was like, well, you know, why not? Like, <laughs> why not? So, um, so then I just sent it and I got a response from Sami, Sami Tamimi. Oh, Sami. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was like, and I was like totally fangirling over Sami like <laughs> which is funny now because we have this like banter between us but um and I remember when he responded I was like oh my god I remember I called my mom I was like uh Sami Tamimi just sent me an I screenshot it just in case like I never heard from him again or whatever <laughs> and then I remember I uh I came I was visiting London anyway that summer to visit my gram with my mom and then ended up uh, meeting Sami having a chat and yeah the rest is history that's so exciting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you were working front of house, essentially, before the test kitchen? or Oh, no, I thought you had worked in one of the spaces first. Uh, before you did it in the kitchen. In the kitchen. Oh, got yeah. it, got it, got it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So then you moved from that to the test kitchen proper? Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how did you make that leap from that kitchen to the test kitchen? I think it was luck, if I'm honest. Like, I think no, it was a bit yeah. more than luck. <laughs> no, I because think... you always had two people with you, right? So then it, Esme and Easter at the time. Yeah, but I mean, we, in a sense, the way it works, uh, it recently it's changed a bit. But we would pe- mm. people come to work in the test kitchen after they've worked in um, in the in the kitchens, mm. and uh, if they're good in the kitchen, and also they show creativ- creativity, and then they. Maybe they would get a chance in the in the test kitchen, but mm. I think Noor obviously is a great chef, and she was a great chef in the kitchen. And I I knew, and Cornelia, who's who was in charge of her in Ottolenghi, knew that she's she's got what what it takes. But uh, and then she came, and you did it. You did a, a day, yeah, a trial week actually. I had oh, a week, yeah. It was a whole week. Yeah, it was a whole oh, week, no. and I remember it with these like you'd basically typed up these 
like four ideas just like and it was like a sentence each or something and I just had to like lead with these recipes and I remember it was just so different than working in on the line or working in a kitchen I was like oh my god actually one of the recipes ended up being published in in flavor the noodles with the mushroom lob oh yes yeah that's right. and that was from my trial week so at least it was a good trial week I think so now it works a bit differently but I used to write like briefs for ideas for the for the week and one of the things that makes a really good recipe tester apart from having the background and the richness of kind of experience etc is the ability to kind of start with something and then transform it into something else because like when you develop recipes sometimes you often have an idea but you need to be super flexible because things happen along the way and you and you, you need to kind of evolve until you get to where you want to get you have to have that kind of confidence that you go like, okay, I started with one thing, we had an idea, but we, I really wanted to, I, the only way around it with this ingredient is to change it. And it's quite a profound thing, you know, to, to be able as a cook to start with one idea and really kind of say, say to yourself, okay, well, actually, this is not quite working. Let's take some, some of these things, elements, and turn them into to something else. Nor you seem like a humble person, though. I can't imagine you were walking around that test kitchen like you owned it no. week one. <laughs> no, I remember I was so nervous and everyone was really quiet in the test kitchen then. So like, you know, kitchens are then. loud. Like everyone, yeah, then, and then I came. And then <laughs> <laughs> kitchens are really loud and then the test kitchen, everyone was so quiet because it is kind of like an office slash kitchen at the same time um, because there's still a lot of writing and editing and all that kind of stuff to be done. And I remember like coming in and like, being afraid to turn on the tap because I was like, oh my God, it's going to make so much noise. <laughs> <laughs> I um, but, um, and now it's become quite a loud, a very much louder place because there's like, we built the team and if there's 10 of us now, there's no quiet and there's a lot of like, you know, ideas bouncing around all the time. And yeah. And also I feel like I interviewed you <laughs> virtually once and you were in the test kitchen and are you? Do you have a subway overhead or? Oh yeah. What do you, what do you call the, the subway oh, over there? Yeah, we had the an tube. over. We had a the train. Tube. Yeah. So we recently moved last year from Camden to Holloway. So when we were in Camden, we were just under one of the railway lines. Because it was like the subway <laughs> pots and pans. Yeah, did, yeah. And when you described it as quiet, I was like, I don't remember that. <laughs> yeah. It is really. It's 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 funny. Yeah. So now we've got a a better environment. It's bigger and there's more light and more space for us to do our things. I think the kind of the, the thing is that you need to concentrate. So you need to be able to be in your own space, first of all, to re- record everything that goes on. It's, it's, testing recipes is, is like the opposite of cooking mm. in some ways. Because when you cook, you, if you know more or less what you're doing, then you just act freely. But when you test recipes, uh, it's just it's so like every action you need to measure or mm. count, you know, like and it's so counterintuitive, like when you just want to add a pinch of salt just to make it better. And then you need to draw the measuring spoon and check exactly how much you're adding. So it's a whole you ha- as a cook, you need to really transform your habits. And I remember when I was a- actively testing recipes, which I, I don't really do much now. I remember I get I would I would go home and cook and I'd just like bring out the measuring spoons and I go like why did you take out the measuring what's that yeah. for it's like <laughs> literally like an instinct you bring out the measuring spoons. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's so funny. I feel like a lot of your career, Yotam, has been to free people from the cookbook to think for themselves and to do interesting things. But I was reading through uh, some of your recipes on the New York Times, and folks want that direction. They want that help. It's so interesting to me because. As much as as your books have have done so much to help us in terms of think differently about ingredients and techniques and all of that, there's just still that expertise we all want to latch on to. 
I think one of the things that people often ask is um, why are the why why is it so detailed? I mean, so there's sometimes there's like these like comedy moments and people write down like. Are you sure an eighth of a teaspoon? What's that all about? What is even an eighth of a teaspoon? I love my eighth of a teaspoon <laughs> measurement. I use that one. Exactly. So, and then I think Noor and I often have these conversations and just generally in the test kitchen, we go like, for me, if you have a, a like a really detailed description of what it is that you need, that you're aiming for, then anyone can choose how many of those details they want to kind of follow and how much they want to follow their instincts and their, their, their experience. And, But it's almost like a record, you know, it's there, There's, a, it's recorded, we know exactly what we're aiming for. And then if you choose to do it differently or you choose to just follow it with just as a kind of as a guideline, it's absolutely fine. It's almost like even better. But people who don't have that experience with this particular cuisine, with this particular dish, then, then they go and follow it. And sometimes it can make such a big difference, like the measurements of a pan can make such a difference to a dish, whether it's kind of roasted or stewed. You know, it's it, it makes all the difference. So uh, so we do that. And then and then, as I say, people can choose what they want to take out of the recipe. Nor you're nodding. Yes. <laughs> no, I mean, it's just as your Tam says, like uh, there's such a rigorous testing process in the test kitchen. Like you you start off with an idea and then you just kind of bring it to life. And sometimes you'll test it two, three times until you get there. Sometimes you'll test it way more, like eight, ten times. And. Um, it, it kind of goes through this transformation, but like all the, the dishes that Ottolenghi is known for, this lay, layering of flavors, it all does start with these, just paying attention to these little details because it really does make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. This book feels different to me, Extra Good Things, in that it's designed to be very teachable. I mean, the photography is still great in this, but it's not the traditional beautiful photo, headnote recipe. Tell us about this book. Was your intention really to make this more teachable? Yes, definitely. So with this book and the one that came before it, Shelf Love, are kind of like a subcategory in, in the Ottolenghi cookbook. So they're, um, they're called the OTK books, like the Ottolenghi Test Kitchen books. And they're a, a series. And essentially what they are is like, we're trying to give you a, a special kind of view into the test kitchen. So it teaches you a particular skill. So the skill that we teach you in, in this particular book is how to take a recipe uh, and take something out of it uh, that would enable your to cook another meal with less effort. Mm -hmm. So if it's like we've got these like za'atar tomatoes, that, so these, these are cherry tomatoes that have been slowly cooked in olive oil and then have, once they've kind of confit a bit, then we add za'atar and certain herbs to them and there's some balsamic vinegar. So it's like sweet, savory tomatoes. And that jar is such an amazing shortcut for flavor. So you use it once for the polenta dish that they're meant for. So mm. you cook the dish and then you keep it in the fridge for a couple of days and then you can put it on your roasted potato or, or toast or whatever it is you, you, you choose to use it for. And it's such a, such a wonderful skill to have because in some ways it saves you time, but also makes you a very versatile cook. So you, you don't need to think like every time I'm going to go out and I'm going to buy my, I'm going to get all the ingredients and start, start fresh. I'm actually... I'm carrying something from one one meal or one preparation to the next. My immediate reaction to this book was this is more jazz to your other books being like the classical. Like you really, <laughs> you know, you're just like Mozart. I don't know. Well, know? this is really the, uh, Noor's brain, brainchild because mm -hmm. in some ways Noor was at the heart of the of the test kitchen as, as the person who runs this during the pandemic. 
and it's a, I, I'm not going to call it a pandemic cookbook because it's, it's good for any time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, those skills that we learned during the pandemic are skills that we take with us um, forward to the future. Uh, but in some ways, that, that, that notion that you can create those, you know, chili oils and sprinkles and, and marinades is something that we actually did while we're testing recipes or are we stuck at home testing recipes it's 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 from the real world it's mm-hmm. not for some someone's kind of head yeah like i said i definitely got the sense that this was about allowing people to improv more and to riff and to do all those things that sometimes folks are afraid to do you know they they feel so beholden to a recipe but this you know i feel like is letting people break free from that yeah definitely i think uh, that's what really what we want people to take out from these books is you know both of the books Shelf love and now extra good things. They teach someone a skill. So where shelf love is all about like using up what you have and like making humble ingredients shine. Extra good things is really about learning to find those things that you love about recipe, that extra good thing, and then mixing and matching um, and yeah, using it in different ways to elevate any meal. And that's really what we want people to take away from, from this book. So this book is out in the UK already. What has been the most popular thing so far? Something always inevitably bubbles up. Okay, first, first, the two things I'm seeing a lot of. The savory one is the sunshine salad a lot of people are making. And I think maybe, I don't know, maybe because it's the, the, the name is great. Like sunshine I was going to say, plate. I don't even like, care what's in it. Yeah. I would want to eat a sunshine salad. <laughs> I know. And it is a sunshine salad, actually. It's um, And it's the easiest thing to do as well. Um, but it's very beautiful. It's very striking um, because of the dressing, which is the, which is the takeaway. It's the extra. Um, and it's basically carrots and miso and ginger and rice vinegar and soy sauce. And it's all blitzed together onto a plate. And it's this bright orange, beautiful dressing that's like drinkable. It's, you could have it like a savory <laughs> smoothie or something. Um, and it's based on actually this, the salad dressing is based on, um, you know, those like carrot dressings you get in a lot of Japanese restaurants. Yes, which I've always wanted to make at home. Okay, is well now, yeah, that's, that's exactly the inspiration because there was this Japanese restaurant that I used to go to with my uni friends at, in, in college and um, and it was that dressing and I've always like, oh, I need to put this in, like I need to recreate this somehow and put it into a recipe. And then, You crack the code? I, I, I think I, I think I cracked it. Well, you know, I've cracked it with like an onolengi twist. So okay. um, so then it's piled with like avocados and cucumbers and sesame seeds and red onions. And it's just it is a really beautiful thing. And um, so many people have made it. And uh, I was I was actually surprised. I didn't think that was one that people were going to go for as much. You're asking about recipes that you see being cooked. So the the one that so, you know, we know, like sometimes, you know, when things what's going to be a hit and some and sometimes you have no idea which ones are going to be spark people's imaginations but the one that i always knew was going to be a hit is the parmigiana pie it's a parmigiana essentially but with kind of a middle eastern twist so the the sauce the tomato sauce has uh sweet spices uh cumin and cinnamon it's got a bit of heat it's got chopped up cilantro and then it's the the eggplants are layered with with cheese in this particular sauce and then it ends up with a layer of kadaifi pastry, which is this kind of crunchy pastry used for making baklavas and de- uh, desserts. But it's just it's just so wonderful. And who doesn't like a parmigiana or a moussaka, or, you know, all, all these kind of wonderful things that have uh, fried or grilled eggplants. But this one is, has that kind of twist, and, but it does have that kind of stretchy cheese, beautiful. Even the image has that in it. So that's obviously been cooked quite a bit. The stretchy yeah. cheese. I mean... Yeah, everyone loves a good cheese stretch. Exactly. 
Yotam, I was looking at some of your re- recent recipes in the New York Times, and I'd love to read the comments. I'm sorry. I know you're not supposed to read the comments. but <laughs> I read I, all the comments, too. Well, you know what? I think that's good if you're a recipe they, developer. They like con- there's, like, actual, like, con- conversations happening between people. Yes, and they're not <laughs> fighting and talking about politics. They're talking about substitutions. Yeah. People are endlessly inquisitive about substitutions. And you yeah. can make a chocolate tart and they'll be like can i put chickpeas in this yeah, or I know. you know can i put eggplant in this yeah recently and the, i was reading on one of our recipes in new york times and there was a whole thing about where to get cardamom pods from and i and i said to yesem i was like is it hard to get cardamom pods in america like i'm really confused like what is <laughs> in a sense it's also just so beautiful yeah. like yeah. people want to make these dishes they want to adapt them to what they have at home Totally. I I think that there is like people fall in love with a dish when you see a beautiful image and you kind of it sparks and imagine that your imagination and you want to make it even if you can't even eat half of the things in the thing. And um, actually Nigella and I spoke about it. uh, Nigella Lawson and I spoke about it in the past and she wrote somewhere, you know, it's as if I think everybody thinks that every, every dish should be for every person. And she says, it's actually not so true. She said, like, actually, we should fight back. We should say, not every dish should be for every person. Every dish should be for a group of people. And then the, because, and then the other dish will be for the other people. <laughs> and we were kind of having this, this kind of moment because in some ways there's so many recipes around. And I always, people ask me to substitute something. I always say, like, let's find another recipe for you. <laughs> because, I, you know, over the years I've, I've published thousands of recipes and oft, often, you know, you, you can really find something else. But I, I agree with you that these comments and these conversations are, are like priceless because it's so nice when people kind of embrace what you've just done, what you've had to offer. And, you know, we're going to cook that. And it gets you into the mind of the people who are making your recipes in a way that people in maybe another field just never have that access. You know, someone who makes music or someone who writes books or... And, and But that's mm-hmm. actually also a new thing, like, because, and I find that's quite amazing that, like, the first book that I published was the Otolenghi Cookbook, and that came out in 2008. And I think about it, like, it feels, so this is pre-social media, right? Like, mo- that's when it started. But I do feel like I have a, so much more insight into how people cook from the recipes now that I had in the past. And that's really useful because when we have our conversations about books, which obviously we always have and recipes, we're really well informed. We know what people like. We know what Americans like. We know what British people like. We know how like how people are going to react to New York Times recipes, how they're going to react to Guardian recipes. They're all very different things. So we have you have a proper ins- insight. Yotam, your co-authors always bring their own flavor and flair to the books. What would you say Noor brought to this one? Oh my God, uh, so much! But you know, so Noor is is I mean, all the stuff that we've talked about so far. You know, that kind of growing up in Bahrain and kind of having those particular flavors is absolutely there. But it doesn't really capture all of it because it is about. So if even if we talk about that Parmigiana pie, so it, it's it's definitely not a Bahraini dish in any stretch of the imagination. So it's got a bit of that sensibility, but then. It's got like so the you know like Americans make parmigiana by tossing the the, the eggplants in like penne them with breadcrumbs and then frying or grilling. In Italy they don't do that. They don't put the breadcrumbs in. So there's already kind of that's a bit of America. So there's a bit of that and a bit of that. So but it's all very subtle and you would you don't often can put your finger on it. But the ability to bring things together like that from different cultural references or just private history is is what I find 
really interesting and and no not interesting but just delicious you know those things are just are just great things and and you i can see that in every recipe that nor develops it's that that kind of creativity that comes from this very varied experience nor what recipe do you really feel your fingerprint is is on the green herb frittata with the burnt aubergine because um, this is a it's you know i didn't invent the wheel with this dish. It's based on a Persian kukusabzi, which is like a herb frittata. And so it's kind of a, a combination of kukusabzi and kukubanjan, which is the one with aubergine in it. Yeah, it's just such a beautiful dish in that you take so many herbs, so loads of dill, loads of uh, coriander, loads of parsley, and you blitz them with eggs and, um, and to make this frittata with burnt aubergines that are like laying on the top. And then on the side, you have this pomegranate salsa with sumac and, and red onion, and it's really lemony and delicious. And anything with like lots of herbs in the base of foods and those lemony flavors, then I probably had my hand in it because uh, I just, people, a lot of people cook with herbs is just like a finishing touch. Whereas in like Iran and, and throughout the Gulf, it really is kind of used into the base of dishes. Because when you cook a herb, it just becomes so fragrant and, and it has a deep flavor and the color completely transforms and the whole, your whole kitchen smells so delicious. It's, it's also like, a, you know, they're quite a cheap ingredient, like bundles of herbs. But, you know, sometimes people will see if they're not used to it, they'll see like a recipe, with like 250 grams of herbs. And you're like, what? Why would I need like a quarter of a kilo of herbs? But, but really, it kind of is such a, such a great thing to cook with. So, so Noor does it with uh, in a kind of a way the Persian sens- sensibility. And then, but that kind of also chimes with like in, in, in Israel and in Palestine, you have this kind of highly, you know, like the, the tabulis, which is literally just parsley with a bit of, with a bit of uh, bulgur wheat, etc. So you see this echoed in the other side of the Middle East with those flavors. So I can immediately relate to that also. And then you added that kind of beautiful pomegranate and, and herb salsa to go with just to freshen it up. So it's, it's wonderful. I have to say the word because I just interviewed your friend Nigella Lawson and I was saying herb and she was saying herb and I was like, oh, I missed my opportunity to call it herb for the first time, which feels so weird coming out of my mouth. But uh, Why herb, was the herbs, H ever dropped? I don't know. That's a great I mean, question. The wh- only American who go? doesn't... Here's a question for you too. Who's the only American who doesn't drop the H when she says herb? Is it in a it's, garden? No. Oh, damn. We were just talking about it. Oh, I don't know. Um, Martha. Oh, Martha. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah she always says herb. <laughs> She's got a lot of British friends. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so speaking of Nigella, though, she was advocating for dried herbs. And it, it, I just go back to my mom's kitchen where she had the same herbs, herbs for like a decade. You know, they were basically just like dust. Organo and... <laughs> exactly, uh, and exactly. Time. Yeah. 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 So what did Nigella say? She's pro-dried herbs. She feels they've gotten better. They have. So I have to say, so we, we holiday uh, mo- before the pandemic and then first time this year in Greece. And they have like, fr- they use a lot of dried oregano. And, uh, and it's, when you get it... There and it's super fresh. It's just like I could add it to every sing- single thing, and it's so so good. And I completely and obviously, obviously, it adds a completely different quality to to mm-hmm. fresh. And uh, so it kind of like like with a Greek salad or with like uh, slow cooked beans, etc. You add it at the end, and you get something which is really aromatic and has that kind of sense of the of the soil in it almost. And Noor, you could correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, but I I th- feel the same 
applies to dried mint. Mm. It brings a really different, completely different things. Yeah. And often in recipes, we would mix fresh mint and dried mint. Uh, where the same way as we do with dried chilies and fresh chilies, something happens when you dry, it concentrates the flavor and you get really completely iteration. Yeah. I think if you just bloom those dried herbs in hot oil just a bit, it kind of like awakens them. Because so that's like when you're making a sauce, like a pasta sauce, if you're doing, you know, you saute your onions, you add your garlic, and then you add a bit of dried oregano to that base with the olive oil, it kind of like awakens this, yeah, whatever it is. And we'll do the same with mint. So if you're making like a cucumber and mint yogurt with fresh mint, then if you just heat up some olive oil and take it off the heat and just drop in some dried mint and it like sizzles and you pour that over this creamy yogurt and it just kind of is so fragrant and delicious and adds Oh, this, I love that. Yeah. Mm. Instead of just dumping the dried oregano in the yeah, tomato yeah. sauce or something. It's a, nice, it's a nice, I've never mm. thought about that metaphor, Nora. That's yeah. a nice metaphor. Okay. It awakens no, I, it. I, I it awakens like it. Yeah, yeah. It's sleeping otherwise. <laughs> it's just dust. <laughs> what are you excited to see in New York while you're here? Okay, so today we went uh, to for lunch with Francis Lam. Yeah. And we had this incredible... Lunch with Francis. <laughs> yeah. as, as we do. Hosted the Splendid Table. I'm just going to open... Yeah. It was called Wu's Wontons Wu's in Wu's Wonton in Chinatown. Was, oh my God. Oh, it was is great. so good. It was so yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, delicious. And Noor, you, you want to talk about your friend's bakery, right? Oh yeah, I really do. Um, so I, I have this like real sense of pride now because... There's a bakery and opened this year called Libre Bakery, and it's amazing. My friend Donna Marad, we have the same last name, but it's a different Marad family. Anyway, um, she um, she's Bahraini, and she opened up this bakery with her husband, who is American, and, and he's Jewish, and she's Bahraini. So they kind of like combined those two like cultures into this amazing bakery. Um, they're really well known for this Lumi Lumi lemon curd babka and Lumi is a black lime uh, which is like a dried lime it's super sour and bitter and earthy we use them a lot um, in Bahrain and yeah she's kind of injected it into there and uh, yeah anyone should go check it out it's amazing what they're doing I've had it, mm. and it's very female forward team yeah as it really well. is the head chef there I met her she's lovely yeah she's just boss lady in the kitchen. So. Beautiful bake goods. Mm-hmm. And I warn anybody who goes there, you are going to want to try everything. So. Absolutely. Everything. And Noor yes. brought some to yeah, the yeah. hotel yesterday. Yeah. We were just kind of like opening all those I bags we and were... having those halva <laughs> in this pastry. Yeah. And like, it was like, it's just, it was just endlessly delicious. It was, it was. And I just felt this real sense of pride. And um, it was, yeah, it was just amazing to see. Oh, good. Well, everybody's mm-hmm. got to get over there and try a few things. And if you are in London, got to go see our friends at one of the Ottolenghi places, which yeah. there are many. The yeah. deli, don't order <laughs> the de- bologna. <laughs> the deli or the restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, it's so good to see you too, Yotam. It's always a pleasure. Thank and you Nora, so much. I'm so happy to have a new friend and welcome Thank to you. the Bomb Squad. <laughs> Thank you to the Bomb Squad. Right. I love it. <laughs> All right. Enjoy the rest of your trip. Thanks, Karen. Thank you. That's it for today's show. Thank you so much to Yotam Ottolenghi and Nora Murad for joining me. If you'd like to pick up a copy of Extra Good Things, head to your favorite local bookstore. Don't forget our Cooks and Books Festival taking place November 5th and 6th at Ace Hotel Brooklyn. Check out cherrybomb.com to snag your tickets. And thank you to Kerrygold for their support. Also, thank you to today's sponsor, Headley and Bennett. Head to headleyandbennett.com for more. Radio Cherry Bomb is a production of Cherry Bomb Magazine. Our theme song is by the band Tra La La. Thanks to Joseph Hayes and studio engineer for Newsstand Studios at Rockefeller Center. And thank you to our friends at CityVox Studios and to our assistant producer, Jenna Sadu. And thanks to you for listening. You're the bomb.